Welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. So science, tech, and society are significantly intertwined. This episode is a perfect example of how this is the case. Today, I'm talking with Emil Grafstra, founder of the company Dangerous Things. Emil is one of the guys that put biohacking on the map. Biohacking basically means managing and tinkering with one's biology using a combination of medical, nutritional, and electronic techniques. For many, the aim is optimization, making the body the best it can be. However, for some, it's augmentation, surpassing the body's biological constraints. So Emil and I chat about the normal stuff like sticking chips and magnets in your hands so that you can literally pay wave or go full magneto. We talk about how he got started in biohacking by waving his way through doors. We talk about upcoming developments in the realms of body augmentation, including what could be the future of digital security, as well as the genetic engineering technique CRISPR, anti-aging technologies, as well as a whole bunch of other stuff. If you stick around to the end, you'll hear me jump on my digital soapbox again and talk briefly about the ethics of genetic engineering and the responsibility that comes with taking our evolution, biological and societal, into our own hands. So this was actually the first podcast episode I recorded. It happened in December of 2016, so I've taken a little bit of time getting this off the ground. I was so excited that Emil agreed to have a chat that I didn't really think through when would be a good time for me to actually do it. I was happy to do it whenever suited Emil best, which ended up being about 3.30 to 4 a.m. my time. So if I sound a little flat, it's because I was running on a few hours sleep and a whole lot of caffeine. Anyway, on to the episode with Emil Grafstra, the man who is inspiring people around the world to reimagine what the body is capable of. Enjoy! My name is Emil Grafstra. I'm the founder and CEO of Dangerous Things, a biohacking company out of Seattle, Washington. So what exactly do you do at Dangerous Things? My my role is kind of, uh, you know, many hats at the moment, uh, but I like to kind of encompass that with the title of Director of Awesome. Director uh, of Awesome. My job is, yeah, yeah. My, my job is to make sure that the customers go, whoa, awesome. So that means, you know, coming up with new things and uh, new designs, new new products, uh, new ways to use them, uh, trying to expand beyond just the product line into uh, application side. So, you know, uh, c- collecting uh, information about like what locks work with which transponders, what devices are incompatible, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Just keep expanding. So could you just uh, begin by just generally defining uh, biohacking and uh, where, where, where it's at at the moment? Sure. So one of the things that I like to talk about uh, is is the word hacking because it has a negative connotation. And what I want to point out is really it's just about uh, you know, the definition that applies to hacking that I like is uh, it's an unconventional approach to solving problems or achieving a goal. And so you know the the ideal is that if the if the hack you know method is is more efficient, more effective, or both, that it, that it becomes conventional and then thus no longer a hack. And so uh, when you're talking about biohacking. It's a broad umbrella term that encompasses a lot of things from, you know, fiddling with DNA and RNA, kind of like programming the software of life itself to, uh, you know, kind of like life hacks, which is you know, meditation, specific diet, uh, you know, regimens, things like that to maximize performance. 
Uh, and then over, you know, in our corner, what we're doing is, you know, direct human augmentation through uh, device implantation. So bionics. And, uh, you know, if you look at all that umbrella, it's all it's all unconventional at the moment. And so it's it falls under this term biohacking. And uh, the, the goal, of course, is that it that it become, you know, mainstream and for the betterment of humanity. And then it no longer is a hack. It's just, uh, you know, biomedicine at that point. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you brought up um, you know, genetic engineering techniques. I'm really excited uh, to see how, um, well, basically how we take evolution into our own hands. But we'll we'll come to that um, soon. If, if we could, if you could just, uh, well, how did you first get involved in biohacking? Like, what was the the story that uh, that brought you into this field? Sure. Uh, back in 2005, I put a transponder into my left hand uh, for the purpose just, of getting rid of just my for, um, um uh, the people listening, what, what exactly is a, is a transponder in, in this instance? Sure. Uh, so a transponder is, a, in, in this case, a passive RFID device, meaning it's a small chip with a coil of wire, and you bring that uh, device within uh, close proximity to a, a reader that generates a small magnetic field, and the chip will communicate its ID number to the reader. The reader will check that ID against a list of you know authorized IDs and then let me in a door or log me into a computer or whatever, you know, what have you. So... That's the most basic common use case for an RFID transponder, um, and that's what I was using it for. So I placed one in my left hand, and I built an access control system for my office, and then uh, I could go in and out of the door and not have to bring my keys everywhere and not have to worry about losing my keys or forgetting them inside. Yeah, so just for the the people listening to this, I'll link to a video of basically you doing just that. You just tap your hand to the door and the deadbolt slides across and, and you're in. Uh, mm-hmm. It's um, <laughs> it's honestly something that's been, I actually rent at the moment, so I can't put it, I can't put a smart lock on my door. So I've been really, I've been itching to get one of these transponders, but I just don't have the, the use for it just uh, as of yet. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so how do you see um, this technology uh, developing? I, I understand you've got um, the, uh, the Vivo key um, coming up. Yes. Um, yeah. So talk a little bit about that. <clears throat> Yeah, so I mean the 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 common theme here is uh, ID, so identity, right? RFID stands for radio frequency identification, and you know if you look at applications in that space, when you're talking about you know like clothing on the rack, you know Walmart, it's it's RFID, def, you know, is tracking your inventory, <clears throat> what's on the shelf, what's in the back room, but when you're talking about a human context, identity is much more powerful. It's usually access control. Is this person allowed through here or log into that computer or start that car, get into this fire safe, whatever, you know. And so moving beyond the simple identifier of, you know, it's, here's my, you know, number, um, you move into something that's much more uh, interesting and powerful, which is cryptographic ap- applications, right? So a tr- typical transponder just has an ID number and a reader reads that and that's it. There's no real security there. It's just a number. Anybody could pretend to be that number. They could try uh, to iterate several numbers until they get something that's authorized. It's it's not really meant as a secure solution. It was meant, you know, for you know, making sure that you could identify Fido at the at the pound, right? Your lost pet, you could be identify identify him that way or whatever. So when we're talking about human identity, we have our biological identities and then we have our digital identities, and you know, in the modern world today, our digital identities are much more valuable and uh, and stealable, right? Um, identity theft is a huge problem. And, you know, we don't really think about right now our, our identities being tied to value online, but, but they really are more so than just our bank accounts. Um, you think about, 
you know, uh, um, data, um, you know, hostage crisis type situation where you have somebody who encrypts your data and then you they hold it ransom. Uh, so you have to pay them to decrypt it and uh, get your data back. So you know, the same thing could be true in the future where, you know, if you look at the Facebook accounts, the Twitter accounts, things where you have real social value, not monetary value, but your own social value online, um, you know, Facebook and Twitter, they're not in the uh, business of, of managing identity. If your account is hacked, it's gone. You know, they're not going to help you recover it. They don't have time for that. And that's not their core business. So, you know, that's fine if you have a Facebook account that's got a few measly pictures on it. But if you think in the future, you know, Facebook's going to be around, you know, d decades. You might have 25, 30 years of history, family photos, things that you don't actually have on your own computer anymore, you know, in your account. This is this has real value to you. And so, um, and it has real value in terms of interacting with the world. Um, I do a lot of, you know, communication and, and business through Facebook, just talking to people and managing groups, things like that. So identity becomes very, very, very important, uh, particularly digital identity. So VivoKey is all about expanding beyond this simple um, transponder concept and bridging, you know, cryptographically our biological identity with our digital identity. And the idea being that you can actually prove you know, your identity through a, a mathematic algorithm. So the same strong encryption and cryptography that's used to secure, you know, encrypted data and, and uh, you know, transactions online can be used to also identify you and and uh, make sure that if, you know, if your account is compromised or something like that, somebody takes control of it, that you can easily prove cryptographically in a way that nobody else can you, that this is actually your account and you own it. And so, um, at the moment, these websites are not set up that way. They're set up for, you know, standard username and password, very insecure, very poor way to go about user identity. Um, but, you know, the idea being that if we could have something that's powerful cryptography, very secure, but also convenient, uh, that's that's the real stumbling block. I mean, security devices have been around decades, but they're not in use widely because they're hard to manage. And if you lose them, then you lose access to everything, Right. And so by having an in vivo device, you actually are kind of bridging that biological identity with the digital in a way that you can't really lose it, forget it, and it's extremely difficult to have stolen from you. Um, you know, a lot of people jump right to the, oh, you're going to have your arm cut off. But I mean, the reality is this just hasn't happened. I mean, there's a billion uh, you know, smartphones out there that are used for paying and accessing bank accounts and everything, and they use fingerprint identification, but you know, nobody's getting their fingers chopped off. It's, it just doesn't happen. Um, but our minds are set up in a way that you know, people are. jump right to that. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Lots to worry about. People so. really were, especially in 2016. Especially yeah, yeah. in 2016. <laughs> <laughs> so would you say that this, um, this could be the future of, uh, well, digital security? Yeah, I mean, security is really about identity, right? Um, and security and privacy, they're often kind of... Um, um, set out there, but they they both have to do with identity, right? Every key in your keychain, every card in your wallet is an identity token, and it identifies you for the purpose of accessing something, right? Either it's a home, a door, uh, paying with a bank account, so you're accessing a bank account through the identity token that you have in your wallet, um, the credit card or whatever. Um, so, but they're all tying back to an, an identity. What what is who is allowed to do what? And so. You know, you're moving beyond that into privacy and security. If you want to, say, encrypt your laptop so that only you can boot it, um, that's a that's a privacy and security application. Uh, that that's also tied to identity. Obviously, you are the owner. You need to be allowed to boot that laptop. But 
um, when you're talking about long-term data storage that's encrypted and private and only you can access it, um, you can't really ensure security through a simple identifying number. You have to actually use cryptography. And that's that's the power of actually having a cryptography platform inside you that actually performs cryptography on chip inside you is is something that's extremely powerful. And and the applications, you know, if, if properly uh, built to support uh, this this platform, they're 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 extremely powerful, and um, I, I'm just really looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. As am I. As am I. Um, how many? So, how many? Um, you know, I'd say uh, the keys could this um, in vivo uh, transponder fit? I mean, will I be able to, you know, um, link every single account that has um, you know sufficient integration, or will I only be able to get you know ten keys or ten um, unique? IDs on there. Um. <clears throat> sure, sure. So this is this is kind of a an interesting question because it, it it's you know I often even on the uh, uh, simple transponders like the XCM or XNT the those those transponders with just the identity number. A lot of people are like, how do I program the key onto the onto the implant? And it's it goes right back to that keychain mentality of like 700 BC technology, right? You have a lock and a keychain, right? So the idea is that each lock needs a specific key well in in reality when you you're talking about key. cryptography yeah you you are the key but but you're leveraging the power of public key encryption and public key crypto so uh, for those of you don't <clears throat> who don't really truly understand public key it's really really great because you know when you're a kid and you want to send a secret message to somebody you have to share the password what's used to encrypt and decrypt that message you have to share that so that you know how to decode the message right so the the problem is if you don't know the person you're talking to how do you securely give them the key first and so that's where public key encryption comes from so when you're sharing a password to do encryption decryption that's called symmetric crypto because it's symmetric you both have the same key but when you're doing public key you take a, each person creates a key pair, a public and a private key. So you would have a public key and a private key. I would also have a public and a private key. What's great about these keys is they're one-way encryption decryption, meaning if I encrypt something with your public key that anybody can have and see, only your private key can decrypt it. So I can send a message to everybody with that's encrypted with your public key. Anybody can see it, but only the person holding the private key can decrypt it, which is you which is really important. So being able to say uh, in a lock context or a door context or a website context, rather than saying, I need a key for each website, you're gonna say, here's my public key. I can answer a challenge to that uh, public key using my private key. So the difference is, let's say right now today, you set up a bank account or open a Facebook account and ask for a username and password. So that's symmetric crypto. They they have a username and a password, and you have to have that same username and password. They, you're sharing these identity uh, tokens, right? You type in your username and your password, you send it. Facebook checks it against their copy. Yep, it's the same. You're, you're in, right? And ideally, you make them unique across websites because if Facebook gets compromised and somebody gets those information pieces, they could then go to any other website and log in. But with public key crypto, you just give the website your public key, which anybody can have. It's not very powerful on its own, but when you want to log in, Facebook says, okay, I'm going to encrypt a message with you, with your public key and send it back to you. Then I can decrypt it with my private key and then re-encrypt it with Facebook's public key 
and send it back to them. So Facebook knows, okay, I just issued a challenge to the person that's supposed to hold the private key for this public key. And I can decrypt it and send it back to them using their public key. So in in you know sending the message to me, the challenge, I can decrypt it and re-encrypt it with theirs and send it back to them. And that's a full circle where the, that, that challenge has been encrypted the whole way. And it proves that I have the private key for the public key of that account. So anybody else can say, oh, I'm, I'm Emil. I have this public key. And Facebook will go prove it. Here's a, here's a message that I've encrypted with that public key. You have to t- send it back to me. And they can't do it because they don't have the private key. So in that essence, one key pair, a public and private key, could be used for infinite locks, infinite websites, infinite doors, because it's an identity token that's cryptographically provable. That is so appealing because I am sick of having to change my password and come up with crazy conventions to apply to different sites. <laughs> yeah, and it's not it's not really future. secure, right? No, no and, you know, some some people will, you know, they'll want to say, well, what about fingerprints or biometrics? That's coming, right? And And I say, no, it's no better than the password you're typing. In fact, it's worse. Because the username and password is analog data you're typing into a computer keyboard. It gets digitized. It gets sent to Facebook or whatever. It gets checked against the hash of that and, and compared. When you submit a fingerprint, the same thing's happening. Analog data is being digitized, and then it's being sent across, and Facebook's checking it. The difference is, you know, when you see a website get compromised, they say, oh, we had a break-in, and somebody got to the password table, so change your password and make sure you don't use the same password for other websites because we could be trying it. And that's all well and good, except for the fact that if you have biometric data that's sent, a biometric data hash is created in the same way. And the same set of rainbow tables or attack systems could be used to, you know, kind of reverse engineer that bio, you know, bio hash, biometric hash. And then that's something they have for life. You can't change a fingerprint, right? Like you can a password, you throw it away. So, it's actually much worse. And and what it boils down to is the body is not a secure token. It's not meant to be used for security. It doesn't work. And anything that's analog can be sampled and emulated. And that's just the reality. So we need something stronger. We need something that's cryptographically, you know, provable and strong and also part of our biology. So in, in essence, the vivo key is upgrading your body to be able to do cryptography, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. So let's, um, Speaking of upgrading the body, um, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, the philosophy of transhumanism, you know, like the the idea that we are now at a point where we can take our own evolution into our own hands and basically choose the course for our future. Like I, it's, it's, um, it's vastly, it's hugely interesting. I just want to hear um, your, your thoughts on that. Sure. So, you know, evolution is two things. It is mutation, random mutation. And selection, and that could be artificial, like we did with dogs, or it can be natural, you know, like like it happens every day in our environment. So, in you know, kind of modern societies, we're opting out of certain selective processes. We're creating our own social processes for selection and mating and all of that. But but the 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 uh, you know uh, selection processes that are you know killing babies because they have a heart defect at birth, right? We have medical science now to be able to opt that baby out, to be able to do surgery, save the baby's life, right? And that's the moral and correct thing to do. Um, we, we can't solve the genetic problem yet because there are uh, technological but also, you know, uh, societal issues uh, standing in the way of that. But the moral and correct thing to do is actually to genetically engineer 
that defect out of the baby, right? So do the surgery, save the life, then modify that gene so that that baby grows up and does not pass that on to their offspring. And that's a huge step and leap in our evolutionary process where, you know, we've been just focused on the selective side. How do we use medicine to increase lifespans? How do we ensure, you know, you know, people have a better chance at life and, and procreation and, and, uh, and so on. But on the mutation side, on the, on the part that actually, in, you know, invokes change, it's just been random. And 99.99999% of mutations are typically not good, right? They're defects, they're lethal problems, or, you know, at least uh, if they're not lethal, they're, they're detrimental, right? And so every once in a while you get a mutation that for our current environment seems positive. Um, you know, there's a child born every, I don't know, couple hundred years uh, that has like a very high metabolism, very um, low body fat, very uh, overdeveloped musculature very early on. So they're very strong. Uh, yeah, and I've a lot those, of people. I've videos of those kids. I think you know, yeah. the ones that are doing those crazy exercises. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of people look at that and they go, ooh, that's a great mutation. That's that's superhuman. That's, you know, we all need to be this, right? We all need to have this gene and, and be super strong humans. Uh, but what they fail to understand is that evolution is mutation and selection. And it's the selective process that really matters. And so if that child was born here in America or in a place where we have plenty of calories, right, it's not a problem. But if that child was born in Africa, it'll die immediately because the lack of resources, you know, that those children have to eat several times a day. And if they don't get food in a day or two, uh, they, they'd starve, you know, the metabolism doesn't slow down. And so that's a detriment to, to, to them in an environment that doesn't offer a constant flood and flow of calories. And so, you know, you look at that and you, you have to decide, is that, a, is that a positive mutation or is it a negative mutation or is it somewhere in between depending on your environment? And, and of course, the answer is it depends on your environment. That kid could never go to space, right? You couldn't bring enough food for that one kid, right? So th these are the kinds of questions and, and the ways of thinking that need to be brought up. Uh, and and when we start talking about genetic, you know, uh, evolution, when we're starting to guide this process, there's going to be fallout, right? There's going to be people that choose to, you know, put these kinds of mutations into themselves or their children, and they don't fully comprehend the evolutionary process and what that could mean, you know. Um, if their child gets stuck camping out in the woods for five days, and they run out of food in a in a day. Uh, because they have this mutation and this very high um, metabolism, that's not good. And so, you know, you're, you're going to see all these crazy designer babies, yes, but you're also going to see uh, the creation of a human species that is going to be able to to have kind of a morphological freedom, an ability to actually um, design themselves. And we're we're kind of doing that now with um, both medical and non-medical implants. You know, where you know, people are looking at like cosmetic surgery. Uh, to, for, for this kind of a aesthetic modification, but we're going to go well beyond aesthetics. Um, it's going to be the focus, of course, at first, because people are vain. Um, but you're going to see, you know, space programs starting to pick this up and say, okay, how can we actually modify a human being for space travel? I, how know, do we lower them? Yeah, no, I, I was thinking about this um, earlier on this year, you know, if we, if we start a colony, you know, on Mars or on some other planet, who knows where, even in the middle of the space, would we genetically engineer our, you know, the offspring on those planets to be better suited to that environment? Or would we try and maintain, you know, um, you know, like our current bone, like bone density, um, 
that's suitable mm-hmm. to Earth? Or how is that going to... Like, basically, are we going to genetically engineer Martians? Is... I, I think you're going to have to engineer the crew for the flight and then re-engineer for the destination. So you think it'll be dynamic. It's not like a, a, a lifetime thing. It'll be basically, depending on your the needs for, let's say, the next two years or something, you might be able to just tweak the, tweak the system to suit that environment and then revert back when, once you're back home. Well, ideally, that would be that would be great. Yeah, uh, but that's going to rely a lot on amazing. technology, right? Yeah, but you know, for the environment that you're in, and and the human body is extremely adaptable at the as it is. Ideally, you'll come up with a genetic modification that that expands that adaptability, so that you don't have to introduce gene modifications in order to take advantage of it. You just introduce, you know, so so for example. Option one, space flight to Mars, uh, or Titan. Titan's a new favorite of mine for colonization. But um, uh, you, the moon. You, um, the, the IC, yeah. Is that the icy moon? Yeah. Uh, it's got a, some, the, the, Google it. There's some very interesting um, opinions out there about it. But, uh, but essentially, you know, you have kind of the, the lower tech option, which is, you know, you forcibly introduce new RNA strands into the cells to, to create new types of um, uh, gene a- action, right, for the, for the flight, and then maybe when you get there, you need to make some other modifications. But there's only so much RNA you can stuff into a cell before it starts to be a problem. And so, you know, we need better technology on the gene mod um, scale to be able to actually fully understand uh, the, the scope and operation of all the genome and then be able to make intelligent modifications that expand our adaptability so that you introduce a series of mods that focus on adaptability and then when your body's put into a state, like low gravity, for example, your body's able to adapt to that rather than just deteriorate. Um, you know, being able to have intelligent these intelligent mods—that's that's probably several decades, if not a hundred hundred years from now. But that's where it's going, and that's where it needs to go if we're going to get off this planet and survive and go colonize space. Uh, but even for today's problems, right? There are certain specific gene modifications that I think would be extremely useful. I mean, hunger is one of those things. I mean, the human body adapts across the range of caloric availability very, very well. But there's certain evolutionary traits that are detrimental, particularly in a society that has a constant flow of calories um, and sugar and different things. You know, we have diabetes and, and obesity and things like that. And that's a function of our body's, you know, a survival trait that we no longer need in this current environment mm, um, you know, where there's yeah exactly it's all very delicious and, <laughs> and you know whatever so so being able to actually tone down that that um fat store right be able to say enough's enough right you got enough to let to survive two weeks without food that's probably all you need cut it off here um you know being able to make those kind of small tweaks uh in the name of vanity right mm. uh is going to pr- produce or just uh, self you know, just having complete control of one's body. I mean, if you... well, of course, but uh, but I mean, from a market perspective, what's going yeah, to drive definitely, tech... definitely. just just like um, I mean, just like porn tends to drive a lot of the cutting edge technologies <laughs> in like <laughs> VR reality. and all kinds <laughs> of stuff. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. You have to you have to drive advancement through the market, right? Otherwise, yeah. it won't make it. So, do you think that as a society we are equipped to uh, you know from a lawmaking standpoint from uh, even just taking these ideas into account and uh, thinking about the ethical you know dilemmas that they um, they put forward do you think we are sufficiently prepared for the uh, the coming technolo- uh, technological changes that we're going to be faced with no of course not uh, human beings are never prepared 
I mean, it doesn't matter if it's a pencil. You're, you know, people aren't aren't prepared for it. But we are adaptable. We're extremely adaptable. And and you know, we weren't prepared for the nuclear bomb, but we have it now, and we're adapting. We weren't prepared for a lot of things. I mean, we're just dumb monkeys. Uh, it, it, every day that I drive around in traffic, I'm thinking nobody should be driving. This is a job for robots. Everybody sucks at it. And one of the things that really shows through are our ape brains, right? There's a particular bridge that, that I have to drive over quite frequently, and it's on a major freeway. I mean, it's, you know, driving 65 miles an hour, but the way the bridge is shaped, it's slightly curved upward so you can't see the other side. And it has it's, it was built in the 50s, so you ha- it has a very kind of narrow feel to it, and uh, it has the overage, you know, the little um, erector set style design, so it's, it kind of goes over in this tunnel-like shape. But because of the shape and because you can't see the other side, people will slow down uh, up to 10 miles an hour. So they'll go down to 50 miles an hour on the freeway just because their ape brain is saying, this is scary to me. It's, it's closing in on me. I don't like it. I'm claustrophobic, so slow down. And logically, these people drive over this bridge you know, at least twice a day to go out and come back. Yet their ape brains are saying, ooh, this is scary, like every time. It's it's a, it's you can set your watch to it. It's it's a guarantee that you will be driving and slower. Even though that you're aware of it, do you still drive? Do you, do you drive slower yourself just because of? I you know, I don't because I'm I'm actively like rebelling you're aware against of your it. bias. I know yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm exactly. a human being. I know my my flaws, and I'm gonna <laughs> act right, accordingly. Exactly, but like, but it, it's one of those things. It just proves that you know we can wield this massive power. Uh, as human beings, but we're still governed by these very, very archaic throwbacks, you know, evolutionary, um, you know, milestones that we, we reach for, for our survival to get us here. But now they're more of a detriment to our advancement than anything. So, yeah, you know, we're, we're legacy it, systems in a completely different right. environment. <laughs> yeah. But, but again, you know, the extreme adaptability is what's interesting. So of course, new technology is going to come out. Of course, robots are going to take all the jobs. Of course, AI is going to be a threat to humanity and possibly our savior. Of course, genetic engineering is going to allow amazing things and also horribly terrible things at the same time. And people are going to explore both paths, right? You're going to see weapons of mass destruction built on genetics. And you're going to see, you know, people that are able to ascend, uh, you know, all kind of human imagination uh, with their with their forms and capabilities in, in, in genetic uh, and, you know, maybe even brain-computer interfaces. I mean, you, you're going to see it all. And, and in no way are we prepared for any of it. No. It's like uh, it's like having a kid. Nobody's prepared to have a kid, but when you have one, you adapt, and that's just how it is. Yeah, I think on the t- you know just weapons based on DNA will go from genocide to genocide, basically just oh, yeah. to select. Uh, that's a terrifying thought, but uh, I mean, that, such is the future. They, it holds so much uh, so much promise and. Uh, We'll see what uh, what comes. So uh, you mentioned um, basically the fourth indu- industrial revolution. Um, do you want to just uh, talk about your thoughts on the impending uh, wave of automation and perhaps you know even how biohacking come into that? Because what you're basically doing is automating a, a set of processes, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, in a very logical sense and a very kind of um, it's facilitating um, some some procedure. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there, there, you know, there's a story I read in, in school back way, way back in school, and uh, it was a story. I think it was an Asimov short story, and it was about 
a society where robots did everything and nobody had a job. They just did whatever they wanted. But there was a, there was a certain sect of people that had jobs and they were the, the repair people. They were the people that were going out and repairing the robots um, and doing other things. And which, you know, as a 1950s mindset, because robots are going to repair each other. But the point is that jobs are a coveted thing. You have something to do, some purpose. And, um, you know, when you're, and the, 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 the story progressed and said, okay, basically, if you wanted to train a set, you would ask the robots to make one for you, and boom, it would come. But people started asking for just, like, blocks of wood and some tools to be able to form wood shapes and do things. And so they would start to build things in their basements in secret and formed a little group. And then the, the you know, the government found out about it and, you know, you're making things. That's the robot's job. You're not allowed to do that. And so it was very kind of interesting. It turned everything on its head. And I don't know if it's going to get to that extreme, but it's definitely a, a major difference where in the past, you know, if we think about our tool set, this, this is what it comes down to. Human beings have always been tool users. We picked up the first rocks, we started pounding stuff with it, and that was the ascension of, of man, right? Like our, our tool use is not unique to us. Apes do it, birds do it. I mean, tool use is, is common. So what's interesting is in the case of what we're doing, bionics, our tools have gotten to the point where they're so small and if well-designed, they're so transparent and kind of managementless that they can literally go inside of you and become part of you um, in a way that your cell phone never will. Something that you wear, a Fitbit, something you pick up or put on, it's never going to be part of you. You might feel a very strong attachment to it, but it's not going to be the same as how you're attached to, say, your kidneys. Um, you know, you, likewise, when you're talking about robots, the fourth industrial revolution, um, you know, kind of AIs operating in real physical space through robot in interfaces, that is a whole different set of tools that is now designing, maintaining, and operating independently of us and that's a that's a new thing that's something that's not happened before um you're going to see this secondary society built around this automation to the point of even control systems are automated even repair systems are automated even the idea of what's to come next is automated um thought has become automated in a way and so not just production not just a human using a tool to amplify their own capabilities. But now they've set this, you know, kind of thing free to do as it will. I mean, that's how it's going to, to evolve. It's, it's going to have its, its own mind, really. Um, and that's, that's a completely different challenge for humanity. What do we do now? Um, it's it's going to be interesting and terrifying. And Well, we uh, might deal with uh, that existential, you know, that, that question, what is the meaning of life? Because if we've got right, all this life right. to live... What the hell are we going to do with it? Yeah, I mean, if you if you combine genetic engineering, life extension, you know, you're talking about people that are going to live two, three, four hundred years. And just for the people and AIs, and I think it's very you know Ray Kurzweil. He, I think the the most up to date prediction for uh, life extension. I think he says he said that um, we will have basically solved a aging by 2029. This isn't something that you know. He's not saying you know 50 years. He's just saying you know a little more than a decade which is just absurd to think about when you think of, you know, just where we are today. Yeah. And there's, there's the idea that, you know, we're going to see marginal improvements in life extension very soon. And there's already a project underway doing that with actual two gene mods that have been in place for over a year in a human being. 
Um, that's good. That's very interesting. Um, do, you, well, do you know what's going on there? Because is, yes. is it something to do with senescent cells or? Like... No, it's uh, there are two gene mods. Um, a company here in Seattle called BioViva. Um, oh yeah, they that's produced, right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so they they produced some gene mods and and had them actually introduced and, and the CEO and, had um, them um, implemented, right? Is that right? Yes. She, yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So and she's seeing results. And so these are two gene mods that independently increase lifespan in every test subject for the last two decades um, that's ever been tested on with no negative effects. And so now she's experiencing some of those effects. Uh, telomerase enzyme. Um, she's reduced the. Um, telomerase destruction or basically increase the length of telomeres on her uh, DNA. Aging, aging um, in, in, in some, like a simple explanation of it is like the shortening of the telomeres. Is that, um, I'm, I'm, yes, a, I'm a novice. Yes. So there's, um, there's a thing called the Hayflick limit, which is a scientist um, named Hayflick. He figured out that from the, from the first cell, the egg and sperm that create the first cell, um, there's a limited number of times that cell can divide. And it's shockingly small. It's only 50 times. And so from that moment on, the first cell has the longest telomeres that protect the DNA strands on the ends. And every time it divides, those telomeres get shorter. And when they get so short that the cell really can't keep the DNA strand together, it self-destructs. And so that's the Hayflick limit. You can only divide so many times because these telomeres come apart. And the gene mod that, um, that Liz Parrish has applied from BioViva has lengthened her telomeres. So she's added life to the Hayflick limit. She's added additional um, cell divisions. The other uh, gene mod was an a, uh, enzyme that um, inhibits a specific growth um, protein. And I can't remember what it's called. Um, but anyway, it increases core muscle strength and it does some other things. And it's shown to, to really help um, extend the lives of uh, primates and things like that. So... It's very interesting. And so this is happening today, right? And the cost is exorbitant. But, you know, this now that it's uh, it's been tested for 20 years in animals and there's never been a, a human use of it that's been publicized at least uh, until now. And so the floodgates are kind of open and the Chinese are just going, you know, apeshit bug nuts over <laughs> gene mods is. and they're just doing – yeah, they're doing whatever because they can and, they can, and yeah. they're backed, right? And uh, there, the government's like, "Yeah, go for it. We don't care. Make make whatever, do whatever <laughs> you want." Kind of excited to see we what just... happens. I mean, just you know, closing my eyes and like not imagining uh, who knows what <laughs> really could be happening. I'm like, oh, well, thanks oh, for yeah. coming up with this uh, superhuman. I wouldn't mind being able yeah, to, exactly. to do this. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's the thing is like the the fear in the in the you know these communities, these uh, technology and and the education you know universities and things like that is that. You look at this attitude that China has, and they're just going, you know, crazy on on gene uh, editing, modding, like engineering, and no holds barred, right? What happens when their, you know, academics succeed in producing, you know, superhuman results? Mm. Uh, you know, you're gonna be guaranteed a that's not really gonna be shared, um, and b you're gonna have superhuman Chinese soldiers, you know, immediately, and, and this is. You know, this is one of those things that when people talk about biohacking and what we're trying to do, which is democratize these things, make them available to everybody at a cheap, affordable cost and, you know, share data and like, you know, be a community that is not going to happen uh, at the you know state level. Right. So the the concern that we get faced with all the time or the questions we were asked is what, what about the haves and have nots? 
and we're like, are you are you kidding me? Like, look at the time span between, you know, the first household getting a landline telephone and it being ubiquitous. That was decades. And the first cell phone, and now it's ubiquitous. That was very less, <laughs> a lot less, right? I mean, maybe one decade, maybe two yeah, at most. And if, if SpaceX goes ahead with the satellite plan, we might have just, you know, another 3.5 billion people uh, on the internet within, you know, a yeah. decade, which is yeah. No but you look stuff. at the you look at the spans, right? The the from from inception to ubiquity, the span of that on, on is getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter across the board, right? So the same is true of biohacking. We we want to drive that gap to close, right? And that's the whole point. It, it's not like it's not like the technology is, you know, you you can buy a transponder implant really really cheaply, less than a smartphone, right? Uh, way less. And and that's not. <laughs> You know, that's not a have and have nots, right? That's very easily affordable by society. But, you know, you're, you're going to find these kind of silos of research and and uh, particularly in gene editing, you know. Uh, right now, identity theft in terms of, you know, if you look at identity crime and, and like digital crime, break-ins, things like that, um, it used to be people going after credit cards, banking information, things like that. That is not the hot ticket item right now. Medical data is being stolen like hand over fist, and it's extremely valuable, right? So you look at hospitals getting compromised, new targets of opportunity where, you know, they have lax security. They've never really been targets before. Um, you know, these these things are, are happening now. There's massive data collections in, in medical science and medical data. Um, so you're looking at kind of this, almost this, this weird landscape of clandestine attacks against, regular citizens medical and genetic data uh to collect it and do do what with it i don't know analyze it figure out your best method of attack for a society or a town or person or who knows you know but it's 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 very uh the questions are all there yeah it's very terrifying in one sense um you know you there's there's like i said there's going to be hope and terror but it's across the board it's just how people work uh, well, I may be naive and, you know, fairly opt- I'm very optimistic and I think we've got a, a good future ahead of us. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel good about it because I'm, I'm, I'm firmly of the belief that, you know, if you want to predict the future, create it, right? And uh, I, I, I used, you know, one of the things I like to tell people is that if you're scared of being controlled by technology, build the technology so that you control it, right? Like, and you're doing that? Yes, That's exactly. exactly what you, you were doing, yeah. And I'm, I thank you for it. I'm very excited to get my own uh, <laughs> Vivo thing. I just, I, awesome. in Australia, I don't know if you have this in the in the US. Uh, it might not be called the same thing. I think you do have it. It's basically it's basically called PayWave, and you tap your, uh, you know, your um, you can tap your smartphone or your uh, <laughs> bank card to pay. And with your, you know, implant, it will literally be a PayWave. And I'm just—I cannot wait for the day when I just walk into a store and wave my hand over it, and then just wink at the cashier as I leave, and they just think, <laughs> "What the hell just happened?" <laughs> yes, exactly. And that—that that is, yes, EMV payments, tap and pay, contactless payments, PayWave—it's all—it's all—it's uh, all coming. Um, the Vivo Key is—is um, you know, the technology exists. It, that's not the issue. The the prototype Vivo keys we have here can talk to the payment terminals. Not not a problem. The problem is. Again, coming down to people, agreements, and and uh, you know collaborations. And so, in order to get PayWave, we need to talk to Visa. And in order to do that, we need to say, yeah, it's an implant, but 
let us worry about people being wigged out about it. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they want to control their image. They want to control everything. So it's been a hard slog. I mean, we've been talking to Payway, uh, you know, Visa and MasterCard uh, for a little over two years now. So Have you it's, looked into Bitcoin, um, like a, uh, using it as a way of transferring Bitcoin? Oh yeah, of course. And, and there's there's already a Ledger oh. wallet app for for VivoKey, and Vivo you can. Key. Oh great! Yeah, yeah. So you can kind so of there's, there's other... if if we move towards cryptocurrencies sooner rather than later, perhaps uh, um, it well may accelerate the process of uh, yes, VivoKeys. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, being able to actually treat um, you know non in vivo devices, or just cards in your wallet, be able to treat them as applications platforms, not just this card for this bank account kind of thing. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the fact that the Vivo key is a programmable platform is very, very exciting because, you know, we, we try to design things to, to have at least a 30 year useful life. Um, if you're going to put it in your body and, uh, being a platform that is programmable, upgradable over software, over the air, it's, um, it, it's going to achieve that. I think it's very exciting. Uh, so just for the people listening, uh, who are, you know, now they're convinced they want to get a, an implant, yeah, an NFC implant, um, what would you uh, say to them? Like, what, what sort of considerations do you think they should make before they uh, they make the decision? Just do um, it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of people don't want to do it uh, because they think, ew, gross, right? Or they have a visceral reaction or something like that. But that's just, again, that's the human ape mind, right? Uh, I mean, people don't have any problem getting their teeth drilled and filled or uh, ear piercing. I've, got, I've or... got a bit of a problem getting my teeth drilled. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know, but you still do it, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, okay. Because the, because the application is compelling, right? You get to keep your teeth and eat, right? That's a great application. So, definitely. yeah, sure, go my teeth. Um, you know, but the reality is doing a transponder implant, you know, the installation is actually less risky than even an ear piercing. Um, you know, the risk of infection is far less. The oh, wow, healing time is far less. Yeah, it, it's uh, because, you know, when you talk about an ear piercing, you're ramming a hunk of metal through two open wounds that just festers and pusses for days on end while it tries to close around this metal, right? It's gross. <laughs> it's and, a great and, description and, of it. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, when you're talking about a transponder implant, it goes, you know, under the skin with a needle procedure. The the skin closes and scabs up immediately in the, on the, in the same day. The next day, you're washing your hands and taking a shower. Not, a, not, a, not an issue, right? Uh, the risk of infection is essentially zero at that point. Um, and it heals up really, really quickly. So, um, you know, you're, the, the logical aspects of it are a no-brainer, right? You get all this functionality, all this cool stuff, almost no impact to, to risk or health or pain even. Um, but people just don't, you know, they, if they can't envision the applications, they're not driven to do anything. Um, people wouldn't get out of bed if they couldn't envision an application that they want to do, like go to the bathroom or whatever, right? Like, it, it, it has to be the application that drives acceptance, not anything else. And so um, the tap and pay concept, I think, is going to be the main driver because it's, A, ubiquitous. You know, tap and pay is just about everywhere. B, people that don't understand cryptography or Bitcoin or how to sign their emails or how to, you know, encrypt their data, that, that's a very kind of niche person at this point. Um, but everybody knows how to tap and pay for stuff, right? Uh, or if they don't, it's dead simple, right? So it, it's going to be the application that's driving things. And and because it is a multi-application programmable platform, payments will be one of those applications. If they want to deploy other things like crypto um, application or an OTP, you know, two-factor authentication application, they can do that. But um, yeah, so it, it's really what it has to be. You have to talk about 
not how great the Vivo key is, but how great the applications are. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I've, I've got one or two questions about the. But, you know, I'm very aware of your time. I don't, I don't want to keep you for too much longer. But um, the have you gotten a magnet implant at all? Yeah, I had a magnet implant. Our first uh, M31 actually is a magnet number two. And I put it in there and then uh, ended up taking it out about a little over a year later um, when we started to get reports of failures. And so I kind of put a torture test on on uh, on mine and, and it also failed. So, um, yeah, we stopped selling them, did a little recall, and then basically took uh, took our time. And now we're still, I think, a year on at this point doing a redesign. Uh-huh. So can you talk me through just the, uh, you know, the sensation, like what, what, what it does for you? I mean, I, I know it basically gives you like a, another sense. You're, you're seeing a part of the, the world that uh, we, we were previously closed to. Uh, what, what was that like? Well, shocking, <laughs> um, particularly when you encounter something you didn't think really had much of anything going on, uh, but then had, uh, you know, has a real um, magnetic, strong magnetic field. So you, know, you get the magnet. You put it into a, an area of the body that's very dense in nerve, uh, tactile nerves, like a pinky finger for me, uh, but under the finger pad, right? And then, you know, I'm, I'm hitting buttons on the microwave. I hit go, and the microwave is run by magnetron, which is a very large electromagnet. And, you know, you can it vibrates the magnet. You can feel the action uh, in your finger, and it, gets, it, it shocks you. You're like, oh, wow, okay, that's interesting. That's something about the environment that I didn't know before. And um, what really got me uh, interested in it, or like kind of like convinced me of this uh, this this um, utility, I was uh, I had the magnet about two weeks, two three weeks, and and during that time, this brain plasticity started kicking in, and uh, my brain started reinterpreting that sensation from my finger as not you know something's not on my sense. finger and yeah like when, when you, yeah you feel a little you know weird vibration on your finger, you look at your finger because you're like hey what's going on with my finger. Um, but the brain had started already re- reinterpret that input as something else, something different about the environment. And so I was going into my local library, and I went through the little gate that says, you know, like, don't steal books. And so I went through that little security gate, and it vibrated really strongly. And I, I stopped in my tracks, and I kind of looked around. Uh, and that reaction, I didn't think about it. It was just a reaction. That completely... That that meant that my brain had already integrated this new input to mean something else. I I didn't look at my finger when that happened. I looked around in the environment. What could be causing this, right? Um, and, that, and the fact that I stopped, like there's something here that that I need to stop and look and investigate, right? So it, it it just like really really convinced me that it's something so simple as putting a you know a bio coated magnet into your finger changes your capabilities it gives you a sixth sense you're now able to actually detect magnetic fields and uh, that's something that's you know very very interesting so thanks again to Emil for taking the time to chat about what our future could look like i'd just like to touch on a few things that were brought up in our discussion they all come under the umbrella of the idea of transhumanism the notion that the human race can evolve beyond its current physical and mental limitations especially by means of science and technology. We are at a unique moment in history. For the first time ever, we can now chart humanity's course through time. We've gone from tribes and villages and cities whose impacts were somewhat localized to a global society where our actions affect everything and everyone on the planet. We have an incredible amount of power in our hands. 
we can alter the landscape and chemistry of entire planets. We can genetically engineer organisms to do things previously unimaginable. We have technologies that allow us to send information across the world instantaneously, and now we are beginning to implant them. Interfacing with digital technologies that enable us to augment our organic intelligence with the likes of cloud computing and artificial intelligence, as well as sharing thoughts telepathically, are things that we can now consider as possibilities. And with these capabilities, with this great power comes great responsibility. Thanks, Spider-Man. Actually, on that note, we've genetically engineered a goat to produce spider silk, so we're already one up on Peter Parker. We can now do crazy things that in the past would have been in the realms of magic or science fiction. All of these possibilities bring up ethical conundrums that I honestly think we are not prepared for. Who is going to tell one country that they can or cannot use a specific technology in a certain way? We are still shackled by the antiquated idea of sovereignty that stops us from interfering with what's going on in other countries even if there are despicable human rights abuses occurring. And that's just an example of local affairs. A country's carbon emissions or illegal logging practices can have dire ramifications for the entire world. Do we not have a right to have a say on these issues? Moving back to new technologies and discoveries, late last year in China, the genetic engineering technique CRISPR-Cas9 was used to inject a person with cells that contain edited genes to help treat someone with an aggressive lung cancer. This then begs the question, is there a moral imperative to use these technologies to remove diseases? And if we can treat diseases with it, what about improving oneself? And if we deem this to be permissible, who will then have access to it? Will it only be those that can afford it? These questions are just a drop in the ocean of the ethical dilemmas new technologies are presenting us with. I don't have the answers, but I'm worried. If most of the countries in the world can't even get their heads around climate change, how can we expect them to be able to imagine these possible futures and how we might be able to navigate them? The most important thing to note here is that the future is ours to make. It's exhilarating to think of what the future may hold. And it's even more exciting that we can choose how we might evolve, biologically and culturally. The only thing constant in our world is change. And if we have the power at our disposal, we should guide this change. We just need to do so responsibly. Anyway, I hope I gave you some things to ponder. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or questions or anything, please just get in touch. Comment or email me, whatever. I'm happy to chat. If you're liking the podcast and the content, and you think these are ideas worth spreading, please rate the podcast and share it. The things mentioned in this podcast will be up in the show notes at talkoftoday.com slash podcast. If you want to keep up to date with our content and what we're up to, subscribe through the website and head to Facebook and give us a sneaky like. And that's all, folks. Peace and love.